want to thank Scott Brubaker for preaching the past three weeks. He did a fabulous job. Appreciate it very much, Scott. Thanks for your good sermons and the good topics. Some of them are really hard to explain and really hard to work with, and so we really appreciate that. And we're going to take the next three weeks, and we're going to take three topics, either the exact topic or similar topic, and unpack them in a way that we can draw more application for our daily life, all right? So one of the topics that he brought up has to do with, um, comes out of James, James 2, and has to do with the topic of works and the relationship between works and salvation. Open up your Bibles to James, all right? And so if you're looking for it, it's going to be at the back of your Bible. Let's review it as you're finding your place there real quick. Give us a little bit of context, all right? James is writing to believing Jews who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Um, We know they're Christians because in chapter 1, verse 2, he addresses them as my brethren. He calls them brothers, and he speaks of their faith in verse 3, and he speaks of their relationship to God in verse 5. So we know we're talking to Christians right now. We know we're talking to saved people, people who profess Christ. That's who he's talking to. He speaks to them about how to endure trials and to seek wisdom in verses 1 through 12 of this chapter. And in verse 13, he begins to speak to them about resisting temptation. And then in verse 18 of chapter 1, he says this. He, let's just let me get a little context. So in every good thing, I'm going to start in 17, but 18 is what we want to focus on. And every good thing bestowed in every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we may be, as it were, the first fruits among his creation, his creatures. You see that? So he says, in the exercise of his will, he brought forth through the word of truth us. He gave us salvation is what he's saying there. He gave us salvation. And, he's, and what he's doing in that verse, he's saying he gave us salvation for a reason. Now, that little phrase, first fruits, I believe, does everyone's translation use that term, first fruits? Is there a different thing in there for a translation? I didn't notice it in my study. So, so everyone it talks about first fruits. Now, first fruits, I looked it up and just to get a different opinions on it. First fruits referred to all Christians who persevered in spite of these trials. They were considered, you know, they were considered in, in the context of God's creation. You know, there is the natural creation, you know, and then there are mankind. But in the context of mankind, the Christians were considered first fruits in the sense they were superior in excellence to the others of the same class. In other words, they're all people, but those who have been redeemed, those who have been taken out of their former way of life and brought into a new way of life, they have Christ in them, they have his Holy Spirit in them, so they are different than the rest. First fruits, he's drawing them out. He's drawing attention to him. He's drawing attention to us. He's saying, this is, these first fruits are those who are saved. They are different than the rest of mankind. And so, in other words, another one speaks of them as being God's visible creatures, believers who are the, uh, in the, are the noblest part. In other words, this is what he's saying about first fruits. He's saying that we as Christians are a showcase of God's wisdom, of his power, and of his glory. And that in all that, we are supposed to, like, when people look at us, they're supposed to say, there's something different about them. I'd like to know what it is. Last night I was speaking 
Bud Ciotti and I were talking to the, ban- the banjo player for the band. And he was talking about a woman he had, was chatting with that um, had come from a church. And she um, came to one of their concerts. And in, at the concert, she began to talk to the banjo player, um, who is a pretty brazen evangelist. And so in the course of their conversation, she came to know Christ. She understood her sin. She understood that she couldn't fix her sin. She understood that she could never do enough for it. And, so she, and then she understood that Christ had died for her sin. And so she placed her faith in Christ at that concert that night. Um, uh, two or three weeks later, they lived in the area. Apparently, he saw her again, and she said that when she went to church the next day, um, the, uh, the pastor at her church says, what happened? There's something different about you. And she said, I trusted Christ last night. You see, there should be something different about those who call themselves Christians. And First Fruits is kind of a way of explaining that, a way of saying that we are showcases for his wisdom, his power, and his glory. Ephesians talks about that. We were just in this passage a few weeks ago. And so in Ephesians 3, 10, and 11, it says that we, the church, so are we, are, we exist so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known throughout the, through the church. That's us. That's my editorial comment in the middle of the verse there. That's us. The church is us. So the manifold wisdom of God should be made known through us to the rulers and the authorities of heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out through our Lord Jesus Christ, through Christ Jesus our Lord. So in other words, how does he want the universe and rulers and people and, and just how does he want everyone to know about his manifold wisdom? Through his creation, through his first fruits, through us. Through us. Matter of fact, one commentator even took the book of James and began to highlight how the book of James demonstrates all the ways that Christians are supposed to reflect and demonstrate the wisdom of God. So here, here is his summary of the book of James. And I loved it because I was working on all this, and so when I got to use his, and I stopped about halfway through when I found his. So he's talking about how does, a, how does a Christian's faith demonstrate Christ, manifold wisdom, power, and glory? Well, he says that in the context of trials, your faith would be tested. So he says, in how you handle trials, that is how your faith is demonstrated. That's how he, his wisdom and glory is demonstrated. In the way you deal with your sin, in the way that you do the word, not just being a hearer of the word. In the way that you love others, you don't favor one over the other. You treat each other fairly. You don't have judgment on one another's. In good deeds, doing things to assist others. In the way you speak to each other. There he's talking about that the tongue is mighty like the rudder is on a ship. There in in chapter 3, verse 1. In the way we think and what we think about. The way that we are at peace with one another. The way that we trust God and not our own ability, not our own smarts, not our own wisdom. And the way that we use our wealth to care for others. In our patience, waiting on God in, in all aspects of our life, but especially in suffering. In truthfulness, always being truthful. In prayerfulness, and then multiplying. 
All those are things that, that James writes about in this book. And all these things are ways that he demonstrates. He says, all of these are ways that we as believers should be living our life in such a way that we reflect back on Christ, that we point at him, that our lifestyle says something about him. You know, try and think of something where you look at someone and you immediately know that about them. You know something about them, whatever it may be. You know, the easiest thing for us here, because we're always harassing about football and all, is you know who, what team you root for because of what you wear, because of what you post, because of what you talk about, all of that stuff. You know people by what they say, they do, they think, they act, they wear. And then it comes down to this, as first fruits. Do we wear Jesus? As first fruits, do we point to him? As first fruits, is our conduct what someone would say, I've read about that in the Bible, you can tell they're believers. As first fruits, when they look at us, do, do they need to ask a question of why we are that way? Well, so James in this letter is talking about how we should live. Find yourself in chapter 2. Let's look at verse 12. Even to support the, the summary that's up on the screen right now, even to support that screen, chapter 2, verse 12, he says, So speak and act. He's talking about behavior. In chapter 3, verse 13, he says, he speaks specifically of good behavior. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show his good behavior by deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Chapter 4, 17. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Again, Doing the right thing. The, the letter is written to these believers about how to live. Because historically, that's not the way James 2 is taught. By many people, anyway. That's not the way that it's understood. So, am I saying that we have to live this way to prove we are saved? No. That's not what we're saying at all. But that is what many others would teach. What I am saying is that living this way points to God's wisdom, his power, and his glory. It doesn't prove I'm saved. It affirms that God is wise, powerful, and glorious. So let's just pause real quick. Is the way that you live, what does it tell others about your God? The words you use, the relationships you have, the attitudes you have. The best way to tell is your reactions. The best way to tell is when you get cut off on I-95. How do we respond? Because how we respond tells a lot about who Christ is in our lives. Not a comfortable thought for me, personally, anyway. How we live our lives tells that about who Christ is in our lives. Let's remind ourselves of this, though. It's important for all these reasons. It's important to, for reflecting back on Christ. So an active faith will point back at Christ. An active faith talks about God's wisdom, talks about God's glory, talks about God in general, all these aspects of him. So if 
If perchance then someone were to take James and they were to say, no, this is what it means. James says that the way that that your works prove you're saved. Have you heard that before anywhere? You probably have. Yeah, that the works that you perform prove you're saved. And James is often cited as the passage for why that is true. There's another theme in this text that I want us to look at. Go to chapter 1, verse 26. There's another theme in this text that you'll find these words and these phrases used. Chapter 1, verse 26. If anyone thinks of himself to be religious, and yet he does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, that man's religious is worthless. Go to chapter 2, verse 14. Again, the same theme, different words. What use is it, he says. My brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? Verse 15 uses the same phrase. What, no, verse 16, what use is it? And then in chapter 2, verse 17 and verse 26, it speaks of being dead, a dead faith. And then in chapter 2, verse 20, it uses that phrase useless twice. Now, when we're studying our Bibles, we're always looking for repetition because repetition reveals often the intention or the purpose of what the author is trying to write. And in this passage right here, he's used, well, there you see it, worthless, what is it used for, what is it used for, dead faith, dead faith, useless faith. And the dead faith there, I, I, he's in the context of the, it's not speaking about, if it's a dead faith, that means it's a faith, doesn't it? A dead faith can't mean it doesn't exist. It means that a faith exists, but it's useless or inactive or non-productive. So it means there's a faith. It can't mean that there's not a faith. And so when he's talking about being useless, useless for what? In the context of the whole book, useless for what? Well, is it possible that in the context of this letter that Paul makes this incredible parenthetical comment here in chapter 2 about a useless faith, meaning that it proves who is saved and who is not? It, it, it can't mean that. He's not speaking about useless faith in the context of saying your faith is useless about proving your salvation. He says faith is useless about pointing to Christ. Faith is useless about proving that you're the first fruits if you don't live in this way. He even goes further and he has two examples of that. He has two examples of that for he has two examples of Abraham and Rahab. And how did their faith point back to Christ? Well, in these two cases, these two people, their faith, the way they behaved, the way they acted, the way they lived, it all pointed back to God. Abraham believed God and had such a great active living faith that it compelled him. It made him. He couldn't live his life in any other way but to act upon what God had told him to do. His faith left him no choice but to obey God. And then to watch God be faithful. Rahab's illustration is the same way. She believed God, and it not only saved her life at Jericho, but it means that she became the very ancestry of Jesus the Messiah. Good works are never a requirement for salvation. I I know we have been told that. 
I know it has been preached. I know books have been published about it. They are an expected result of salvation. They're not a condition for salvation. They're a consequence of salvation. It's what should be normal in a vibrant Christian life. Furthermore, in this, in this passage, or in these, in these texts here, there is a theme of judgment in the letter. Chapter 2, verse 12 says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. In other words, because you have so much freedom and you're free to abuse it or you're free to enjoy it, because of all that, you'll be judged based on how you live. Do you get the sense of what he's saying there? He's saying that, that, that because you have so much freedom, because you can do so much, and you have freedom to choose right or wrong, that in the context of that, when you choose wrong, the judgment is more severe. The judgment is more harsh. If you, it's it's kind of like when one of our children do things and it's like they didn't know any better. And you're like going, okay, this is a teaching opportunity, right? And you say, okay, look, you shouldn't have done that. Let me explain why. Let's know to do it again. Go sit in the corner for five minutes. Let's talk about it later, all right? But no, 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 no. When you've told them time and time and time and time and time and time again, don't do this, and they walk over there and do it one more time, uh-uh, they ain't no talking. It comes down swift and severe, doesn't it? Because you knew better. And you abused the opportunity. You didn't do it. Not only that, but he goes on. Judgment comes up six times in this letter. What is judgment? You know, so think about this. Christians, this letter is written to Christians. So their sin is not counted against them in such a way that they're going to be judged for their eternal destiny. Their eternal destiny is determined, correct? We placed our faith in Christ. And once we placed our faith in Christ, it is sealed by the Holy Spirit for eternity. So we know that our eternal destiny is heaven, is an eternity with Christ. That cannot be undone. So then what is he writing to Christians about judgment for? Well, the only judgment that Christians will suffer or that will go under is the judgment of their works. And then from that, they will receive rewards. It makes sense for James to write about judgment in this book when he talks about our works, doesn't it? It is not, it cannot, it makes no sense at all for him to write about judgment as regards to eternal security, eternal salvation to a group of saved people. It doesn't go that way. So what is often taught is that you can determine if someone is a Christian by their works. I've, I've heard that a lot of times. And you probably have too. And you maybe have heard that yourself. You might have taught that or believed that yourself. So this is the thing. Scott brought this up uh, two weeks ago, I think, or last week perhaps. This is the thing. If that is true, if you can tell a Christian by their works, by their actions, by their, what they say or do, what you can see, well, that would mean then that there are many people who don't profess Christ, that I would be left to assume that they're Christians because I see them do an awful lot of good stuff. I might have told you this story before because it was, it was, it, it marked me. I, I just, I've never, never 
lost the image of it. When I was in college in 1982, and um, in the winter of 1982, a plane crashed into one of the bridges on the Potomac. Anyone old enough to remember that? Thank you very much. I see that hand. I love saying that in church. I see that hand. All right. Um, and that plane crashed into the bridge on the Potomac. And if you, what captured me was a man who had been rescued, and he dove back in to rescue another, and he perished. Based on this theology, he had to be a Christian because he did an extremely good work. That seems kind of loose, doesn't it? Seems kind of flimsy to me that I should be able to look around and say, well, that one's a Christian, that one's a Christian, that one's not a Christian, that one's not a Christian, that one's not a Christian. Because of what I see them doing, what I see them saying, what I hear them saying. Because the fact of the matter is that um, at any given time, some of us are not producing a good work. So then how long is this, does the gap have to be between good works to immediately begin to say that he's not a Christian? How many times in a day does one have to sin for their works for the, to be said, oh, he's not a Christian, I've seen him sin ten times today. I've seen him sin 50 times today. I've seen him not demonstrate any spiritual fruit for a week, for a month, for three years. Because, you see, it was for me three years that after the passing of my mother and after all kinds of other family business went really crazy that I just said, I don't understand this stuff. I don't understand my Bible. I don't understand how to apply it to my life. And I remember sitting on the side of my bed next to the bed, next to the bed stand, and I was reading it, and I'm like going, I, I can't do this. I can't profess to be a Christian when I don't live it any better than I am. And I distinctly, you just remember, you have those memories. And I closed it, and I put it there for three years. Until a visit up here to this church in 1985. During those three years, you would have looked at me and said, not a fan, not a Christian, no fruit in that life. But what you didn't see was the conviction of sin in my heart. What you didn't see was me wrestling with choices I made, knowing that they were wrong, but knowing that this is what I was going to do anyway. What you didn't see is one particular time in my car, distinctly feeling the Holy Spirit saying to me, I'm going to call you back. You're not gone forever. And me responding, all right, we'll talk. You didn't see any of that. But all of that was demonstration of God still at work in my life below the surface. So what we see in other people's lives really cannot be a very good gauge of being saved or unsaved. My works don't prove I'm saved. My salvation is based on my belief that I cannot save myself and that the death of Christ paid the penalty for my sins when I couldn't have done it myself. 
That's what my salvation is based upon. That is what I believed as a young boy in sixth grade in 1972. That's what Jason believed out there on that patio. That's what Mike believed down there in that mill house a long time ago or thereby. You know. That's what Grant believed in our house in the kitchen one time. You go around this room and you can point out times when people believed that, that Jesus died for my sins. That's what Chris believed here in this room in December. That is what makes a man or a woman or a child a believer in Christ. That's what seals them for eternity. That's what makes them a Christian. That proves they're a Christian. See, the fact of the matter is this, is that our works point to Christ. That's what they're intended for. And you'll hear it said, usually in a passing kind of way, oh, well, you know, only God knows their heart. Well, you know, that's absolutely right. Only God knows who has made a true confession of faith. Only God knows who has honestly sought him for the salvation of their sin. Only God knows that. We cannot look at the outside to determine that ourselves. Someone is going to say, well, if I see someone in sin, that's wrong, right? Yeah, that's right. Scripture writes that as well, that when we see others in sin, we should go to them lovingly and come alongside of them and talk to them about it. But that's dealing with sin. That's not making a claim about their salvation or not. When you hear people say that, that works have to be evident for someone to be claim that they're a Christian, go back to James. Read the whole book. Don't read just chapter 2. Read the whole book. Know what his intent was. And understand that he is not saying that men and women and children have to demonstrate works to prove they're saved. He's saying that men, women, and children need to show works to point back at Christ and to to the manifold wisdom to his glory, to his power. Works are an expression of my gratitude. They are an expression of my obedience. They tell others about the loving, sovereign God who made, made me and made a way for me to redeem from my sin. Works express my love for God when I work. Works express my belief in God. Works express my obedience to God. Works express my faith that God has an eternal plan and that I have some type of role in that plan. That's what works do. Works says, you told me that this is the way I should believe, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to step out and believe that way. He gives us clear instruction about how to live in the face of cancer, how to live in the face of broken relationships, how to live in the face of unemployment or of impoverishment, of of, none of us are suffering famine, but like our brothers and sisters around the world who are. He gives clear instruction about how to live in all of that. And as people step into living that way, they point back at him, and that is works. That is works. Obeying him is works. Because he asks us to. Because those that we love, we cherish. My work is an expression of my love for him. Then today, like we've already asked, what in our life is not pointing back at him? What is there in my life that points at myself? Points at other idols and loves in my life. What are your works saying? What works are there in your life, seen or unseen, that you can point to? and say that your love, your faith, 
your belief, your obedience to God is demonstrated there.